Greetings, Ray's listeners. Today, I am joined by Ann Dean, the Managing Director of Research and Relationship Management at George Washington University. Outside of work, Ann started as an alumni chapter leader in San Diego. At work, she has accelerated into one of the top leadership roles in the prospect development space. And Ann has played such a critical role in building the giving funnel at George Washington. And I hope you enjoy learning about her strategy and the outcomes as much as I did. Here we go. Greetings, Ray's community. Brent coming in live from the home office in Narragansett, Rhode Island. And I am so excited to be joined by Ann Dean, the Managing Director of Research and Relationship Management at the George Washington University. Welcome, Ann. Hi, thank you for having me. Really now, excited. Ann, I was doing uh, a little bit of research. I know that you're the research expert here, but I've got to do my part. And I was very curious to know how many people in the world have a job title called Managing Director of Research and Relationship <laughs> Management. So I have uh, the answer and- to that question. You know the answer. Oh, okay, good. I'm glad you have the answer. Uh, at least one. I have no idea. <laughs> exactly one. You're the only person in the world that I could identify with that job title. So that alone <laughs> is going to frame much of the podcast, how you get to that position, uh, and uh, what led you to have this unique but important role. And in all seriousness, it has been a privilege to get to know you and your colleagues. Our teams have been closely collaborating over the years and uh, really starting to see some exciting work at the intersection of prospect uh, development, prospect identification, and digital content. And and that is something we care a lot about. Uh, And it's just been terrific to see what uh, you and your colleagues have been accomplishing. So before we get to that, I do want to understand your journey. At what point in your life did you expect you might become the only managing director (laughs) of research and relationship management in the world? Who are you? In the world. Uh, well, when I was three, I decided, no, just kidding. I was like, great, isn't this every little girl and little boy's dream is to become the managing director? Um, so um, certainly, like everybody else, sort of totally fell into philanthropy, right? And nonprofit um, work. I got into it as a student worker at my alma mater. Where, I mean, even before and, that, where'd you, where'd you grow up? You went to Vanderbilt. Oh, um, and so I'm curious what led you to Vanderbilt. Um, a boy, of course. So I, you know, academics as well. It's very important. Um, stay in school. But uh, so I grew up, my husband and I are our high school sweethearts. So we met in middle school and uh, in Maryland. And um, he went to went to Vandy. And after the first year, I transferred there to be with him. Um, and that's, that's where we started started our journeys. And then from there, we moved out to San Diego so he could get a, a graduate degree. And I just kept, kept going and worked at um, UC San Diego in their, in their philanthropy office. And so I will also fess up, my wife and I uh, met in middle school and uh, no. would have been high school sweethearts um, had, uh, had she uh, allowed. But uh, persistence is key. And we ended up uh, uh, getting married in 2008. So you graduated from Vanderbilt no, in 2008. No, us too. 
I, I graduated from Brown in 2004. You graduated from Vanderbilt in 2004. High school sweethearts, getting married in 2008, and then ending up in the advancement sector. So we've been marching some parallel paths here, and uh, and I look forward to just learning a little bit more about that that student role at Vanderbilt because it is very common. I, I think having interviewed a bunch of folks on this podcast, where obviously none of us know what the word advancement means in the context of philanthropic. <laughs> giving to higher education one goes to it along the way for you it sounds like that happened as a student worker uh, did you know right away that you liked it and uh what led to pursuing it full-time post-graduation in san diego yeah um great question so my uh my family has worked in higher ed for a while right my uh grandmother was in charge of uh, some, right? I think she was staff as well as maybe a volunteer for her alma mater for Wilson College um, in Pennsylvania. My mom worked at Hopkins for a really long time in um, doing programming for one of their historic houses. And then as every smart university does, they realized her programming was making some money. And so she got sucked up by the advancement office. Um, and so when I was doing the rounds at the student worker fair, it was like, well, let's, let's go for, let's go for major gifts and really, um, just really fell in love with it from there and, um, start, you know, started the falling in love with philanthropy generally, and then really fell in love and found, as I heard a, another colleague say, my forever, my forever career, my forever industry, um, in the prospect development piece, right, of advancement, and really um, felt like my skills from everything I had learned and my interests and right putting together those puzzles was really was really coming together. So that led you to move to San Diego, take that opportunity, yep. and yep. if there's one thing I know about people who move to San Diego, they rarely leave. And so there's got to be more back. of that story. But, um, <laughs> but I also saw that when you moved to San Diego, in the spirit of our parallel lives, you also immediately, it appears, got involved as an alumni leader for Vanderbilt. When I moved to Chicago yep. in 2004, I immediately got involved as an alumni leader for uh, Brown. And so what was it like um, moving all the way across the country, getting to such a spectacular place like San Diego. Um, yeah. How important was that Vanderbilt community in, in your early years, even as you were working at UC San Diego? Yeah, it was, it was fantastic, right? It's that little bit of home that, um, that I had had on campus and our on-campus experience. Um, and really, you know, as you may have also experienced, um, you start to raise your hand and then you speak up a little too much at the meetings. And then all of a sudden you find yourselves like in charge of the chapter. Um, but it was so like, it was, it was also so great because you get to meet people that are all different class years. You get to meet people, all different backgrounds um, who you, you can call on in your personal life now that you didn't maybe know when you were on campus then. Um, and really just having that connection back to back to our our time on campus um, at Vandy. And, um, you know, we it was just and no one likes to throw a party like Vanderbilt in San Diego. So that was always a good time. Okay, right? favorite alumni go. event during your time oh, in San Diego. Yeah, you got to you got to go to the Del Mar racetrack for sure. Yeah, hands down. It was it was 
beautiful. It was a my, beautiful event. Every my sophomore year. year roommate grew up in uh in Torrey Pines. In uh, oh, or went nice. to Torrey Pines. Grew up in, in Del yeah. Mar. Uh, and uh okay, so that's on the list. So the the racetrack is key. And oh yeah. There was a good uh reception. I mean, what was the context of the club when you got out there? Was it already super strong and you just had to keep it going or did you have to make any changes or yeah, I think we were we were relatively strong. We had, um, like a lot of clubs, I think we had, you know, you have your core group who are going to come kind of no matter what, what you're throwing, whether you're throwing, let's talk about, you know, have this. And it was great because you would have professors out because everybody wants to come to San Diego. So you'd have professors who were who are out um, for their vacations or conferences or whatever, and you you could get them to speak at someone's gorgeous house and just really... Um, really have, you know, the watch parties and basketball and football and just really get around that. We um, had a bigger community than we probably saw, but we had our core group and you'd have people plug into different pieces as well. You'd have your sports people, you'd have your, you know, your book people, you'd have your other, right, real, your volunteerism people, um, your social service kind of people, and they would just sort of plug in wherever they felt most comfortable, which was great. All right, so you're doing all of your event planning, getting the club going, nights and weekends, and then by day, beginning to build your career in the advancement space. And I believe the first job title was Development Assistant Division of Arts and Humanities. And I know you're not the only person in the world with that job title. And so what were some of those early years like? And frankly, um, what I also don't often hear is that you know, people were falling in love with the sector, maybe in some of those junior development assistant roles. So tell me more about what what stood out early on, if it was good mentors or just mission that that really started to um, click for you. Yeah. So we did, um, it, we, we did some really cool projects, uh, both. So I was working both for arts and humanities. And then I think at some point they, they tacked me on also to the Preuss school, which is a, a charter school on UC San Diego's campus. Um, and, uh, the arts and humanities stuff, we were really building, um, a cadre of Greek, uh, endowed chairs. So Greek focused, uh, Greek history, so ancient Byzantine and modern Greek history, and um, we worked really heavily with uh, members of the Greek community in San Diego, and they were just like we like generally, and then also specifically, we had um, a cohort of really invested and involved and very passionate uh, volunteers who were just like, you know, they would, they would just ooze excitement, right? And so like, so easy to be excited about a project like that. Well, like, I don't have Greek in my background, like, okay, I took some classes in ancient Greek literature, maybe or whatever, right? Or whatever. But like, they just, and they were so warm and welcoming. They were like, you know, come and you'd pick documents up from their house and they'd like, let me hear some food, right? Like just all the things, like they were just so warm and welcoming and fully invested, engaged and um, like bought in on the project. Um, so we, 
you know, my first, one of my first things was like making sure that we were going to be the only school. So to your, to your research, we, I had to make sure we were the only school who was going to have this cadre of these three specific uh, chairs to really talk about sort of an, an institute of sorts, not in name, but like that this was a focus of arts and humanities. So that was super cool. So when you see a project like that, I feel like right now, you know, there's definitely a narrative around the higher ed space around uh, it's all about jobs, placement, you know, economic opportunity, STEM. I mean, what you just described is like the most liberal of the liberal arts sort of spirit of higher education. And I'm just curious for people who maybe are feeling that same pressure, the narrative that I just described in the present moment what appreciation maybe that gave you for the broader humanities aspects of, of higher education? Yeah, I think, I think what's really, um, what's really interesting is that uh, we need all of these things, right? In theory, we need at least some of them in our background. Um, And that's part of the higher ed mission. Now, right, we've got schools, as you said, who are focused more on STEM. We've got schools who are more focused on languages and literature or whatever, law and politics, right? Um, But it's just so wonderful to see them come together and have that, um, you're you're like helping build that more uh, fruitful human, right, after, after their higher education experience. It's wonderful. I mean, I studied international relations, Spanish, Portuguese, and Italian. I'm right there with you. You you got Uh, it. You got it. Yeah, it's just interesting (laughs) because, you know, ultimately, um, when you think about the people that were were philanthropic for that program, for that project, I mean, you were competing for their attention. You were competing for their money. You were competing for, you know, other nonprofits wanted them, I'm sure, some of the same people to fund their initiative. And so it is interesting to think about sort of that, what really makes a donor tick and how you're able to compete for that, uh, you know, money and, and time and attention. And, um, and so you're, you're getting inspired by projects like that. And it sounds like you weren't, uh, you you were close to the action. I mean, you were close to the project, close to getting to know the donors, which honestly, I don't know that that's always frankly done well enough in the research context in particular. And then you kind of transitioned into, into research. And I, and I guess I wonder if maybe having more of that external, you know, donor connectivity was helpful as you then made that transition into a role that oftentimes is the back office or, uh, you know, not really um, visible in, in, you know, it's a key part of the advancement engine, but not always visible. Yeah, I think absolutely. And certainly, um, so one of the things that I just did, I did a little stint as an interim associate VP for strategic advancement solutions, which is a long title to say my boss, right? And one of the things I did was some some amount of front facing again, and it had been 15 years or more um, since I had done some of that. And boy, if I didn't pull out all those those tools and skills and all the right, like all the things to really make sure that if I'm talking to, you know, a donor, I'm making sure that I'm doing it at that caliber that my employer would expect, um, regardless of my most immediate experience, as you're saying, in in the prospect development sphere. Just checking and 
there is only one associate vice president of strategic <laughs> advancement solutions in history that I've been able to identify. So I'm seeing a trend here, Anne. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so you did make the role, you made the transition to research analyst at UC San Diego. You yeah. are, you know, from 2007 to 2012 were out there and then ultimately uh, decided to come back east. But I am curious as you made that move to the, you know, the back office, if you will, um, what stood out? And frankly, one of the things I'm always interested in understanding, and hopefully this isn't too loaded of a question, is the relationship between research analysts and gift officers. Because it really can be a, a yin and yang or maybe an oil and water, depending on uh, how, uh, you know, how things go. And so what was it like when you moved into that role? Any s lessons, mistakes, uh, I don't know, All insights about how to make a good impression and have a strong working relationship with, with your frontline staff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, certainly as I, as I was talking to some colleagues earlier this week, they were saying it all started in San Diego. And I was like, yes, it did. Um, it, it really did. And that was where, you know, you're getting, as you're saying, you're getting that frontline right? Not frontline experience, but front on the front lines with the gift officer and really trying to work to be that trusted advisor with them where you're like, you know, you're either, you might be pumping them up for a call. You might be talking them down. From, you're like, you're like playing, playing hype music for the gift officer. Yeah, before the oh, meeting. Exactly. It? No, it's truly like you might have to talk, like you might have to talk somebody into like this is, you're doing the right thing. You know, you are right. Not that you're What's convincing them of something. Of so we had, um, we were working on a gift uh, a while back where, um, where the gift officer really was feeling a little bit of, um, and this is somebody who had been in his career forever, a little bit of an imposter syndrome, right? That he sort of felt like because the individual was not, they were brought to the table by another volunteer that, um, that he didn't really earn that gift. And I was like, no, you, right? We did all of the things to convince this volunteer that we were the right place for him. And then he was able to say, come along with me. These people are doing something really special. So that's a little bit of the hype to be just like, you're, you're doing it. You're doing the work. Did you go find this person? Like, did we all go find this person independent of this volunteer? No. Did we bring them to the table all by ourselves? No. Did we do all of the good work to get him there? Yes. So sort of, it, it doesn't always have to be that hard. Like it's okay if it's easy once in a yeah. while or, or more streamlined. Interesting. Um, any yeah. frustrating experiences with, with gift officers early in your career, uh, whether it was, I don't know, they didn't like your hype music or they weren't uh, <laughs> interested in, in your perspective? Yeah, I think one of the things that um, has been a little challenging and is for off, often a lot of prospect development folks is a, a view, a misunderstanding um, that we have never asked for money and therefore we do not know the strain. Um, and I think that's challenging, right? Especially when some of us, granted, am I asking for thousands and millions of dollars? No. 
Have I raised money for my chapter um, to continue providing amazing programming to our members? Yep. Um, do I know what it takes to try and get that get that uh, sponsor to re-up? Sure. Um, and so really, really sort of, it's not, um, not letting those kinds of things stop you from, um, from continuing to be like, you know, I hear you and I, I know this person, at least on paper, let's talk about the themes I'm seeing. Um, and you tell me what you're seeing and somewhere in there, we'll create a beautiful strategy toward, toward cultivation and solicitation. But it really does sound like you had a very strategic and collaborative working relationship in general. I mean, I think there can be this perception at times of, you know, research pulls you the bio and sends it to you and then like, that's it. Yeah. Right. And, and sometimes yeah. that is actually what is happening. And so I think that's where these new words like prospect development or prospect management relative to research, they can oftentimes be used um, synonymously and they're really not. And, and so uh, and also, I'm guessing, given some of your leadership in APRA and just your broader network, that even what research meant or what prospect development meant 10 years ago is probably different than what, what it means today. It seems like it's been evolving yeah. um, pretty rapidly. And, and I'm just curious, um, as you were then concluding that role at uh, in San Diego, you had moved out there, you'd become a volunteer, you had good career growth. You're loving the weather, uh, yep. yet you you made the move east. And so, how did that come about? Was it uh, uh, always kind of in the plan, or or uh, what led you to DC? Uh, yeah, it it was certainly always in the plan to come to come home, right? So my husband and I are are from the local area, and um, you know he he had finished his graduate work. We had our first daughter, and it was time to come home. Uh, because um, despite despite the beautiful weather, I have told many colleagues, right? Like I had a particular, I had a particular office cubby cube, whatever it was. I could lean back and I could see uh, Torrey Pines Golf Course and the ocean. Like that's really hard to give up. But also having a a real network of family supporters around yeah. as you're trying to grow a young family is really important. Um, and I'm. I'm lucky that I found um, an opportunity at GW that's just really allowed me to catapult from there. So how'd that come about? How did GW come about? There's a lot of schools in the, you know, Eastern Seaboard yeah. and Mid-Atlantic uh, DC area. Yeah. Yeah. They, um, we had an, op right. We had, we had the opening, we had the opening and there was um, a great, you know, I, I, looked around as as a lot of us are able to do in DC and, and New York and other larger shops, uh, larger cities at DC has not just higher ed, right? We've got uh, humanity, uh, humanities orgs, we've got social services orgs, we've got wildlife, we've got environment, like we've got all different flavors of nonprofit. And um, thus far, higher ed has really been my home, uh, because it's a, it's also an ability for me to give back, right? I was a scholarship recipient, and so working for another higher ed, I'm able to make sure that there are still future scholarship recipients um, coming coming along. 
And yeah. could you have guessed when you started at George Washington that eight years later you, you'd still be there and you'd have such unique job titles and responsibilities? Um, I don't know. No, I don't think I could. I don't think I could have. Um, it's it's been a very uh, it's been a very fun sort of like not straight trajectory. It looks straight on paper, um, but it's been great. They've had they've had opportunities for me to raise my hand, and I raise my hand, um, and both things, you know, combined uh, have really led to some really nice nice projects. So tell me about the first time that you had the opportunity to raise your hand there. Oh man, uh, the first time, let's see, the first time I really got to raise my hand, we, um, when I came in at GW, we had no director uh, level. And so I was a senior prospect analyst with no immediate boss. I had an interim um, and Let's see, I came in in May. By November, the the individual that we had offered the job to um, decided to stay at their existing organization. And I had a very uh, fantastic mentor pull me aside it, within the organization, pull me aside and say, I think you need to take Thanksgiving weekend and think about if this director job is for you. And is this right? Is this time to throw your hat in the ring? Who was that mentor? And if he or she hadn't said that before Thanksgiving, would you have ever considered taking it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it's um, that was BJ Davison. So he is currently at West Virginia University. He had been at Hopkins, he had been at GW, he had been at Hood College. Um, and um, if he had not, I don't, I don't know. I maybe would have gotten there, but it would have taken me longer, but I'm Why not sure. Why do you think DJ was willing to, I don't know, take an interest and, and uh, be a mentor? I mean, did you formally request the mentorship? Did it emerge organically? I mean, how'd that happen? Yeah, no, it definitely emerged organically. He was actually my client, uh, right. In terms of me being his, his prospect development liaison, um, because he had been at places like Hopkins and Hood, um, I knew him just from being around and, um, and it was just, it was an opportunity and he, he nudged me. That's great. It's amazing yeah. how common in these interviews mentorship comes up or that one moment yep. where they encourage you to take a shot and just that little bit of nudging can really, you know, be an inflection point in someone's career. And so my understanding is after that Thanksgiving, you threw your hat in the ring, you received the director of research and relationship um, management position, and you had a pretty big team in that regard. I mean, I'm not sure that people would guess that George Washington would have such an investment in this research and relationship management um, realm. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about what that team was like. And when you um, sort of showed up as, you know, the new boss, uh, the first day, frankly, with a bunch of your peers who hadn't even been your peers that long. I mean, what was that right. transition like? Yeah, I think that's, that was really interesting, right? So I did a lot of reading um, as a new, as a new manager. I will say I had not, this was, this was a GW taking a chance on me. I had managed student workers up until then. 
uh, which is a which is an amazing experience. And, you know, it's wonderful to see, like I have at least one student worker from my time in San Diego who's now in prospect development, right? So that's just fantastic. Um, and, but I hadn't managed front lot like FTEs. I hadn't managed actual staff. And there is, there is a big difference as people who make that shift uh, learn. And they were, they were very gentle with me and I still learned a heck of a lot about how to be clear, setting expectations, um, prioritizing work. And, um, and really like the team was, was a partnership among all of us and um, really working, working hard towards a vision. Um, and that was, it, it's really, it's worked out, which is nice. And so you took that role, you're settling in back in, in DC, you've now got a young family. Um, it looks like the kind of external engagement you had by way of Vanderbilt local alumni chapter in San Diego, some of that void and community building, it looks like was really um, made up for in DC by you embracing APRA and some of the other yeah. professional networks. And it just looks like, uh, and I want to know more about it. How did you get involved and why did you decide to really just put yourself out there? Because they're, you know, not everybody is comfortable, uh, you know, getting getting involved or even showing up to that that meetup, if you will, but then not only showing up and, and really becoming a frequent contributor, a leader of the organization. What was that um, trajectory like? And I mean, frankly, how does that benefit you both, both personally yeah. and professionally? Yeah. Um, well, I have another mentor to thank for that. So um, Christina Pulowski, who's been in the prospect development world for ever, um, she was a mentor of mine out in San Diego. And I said to her, listen, you know, as I was going through the, the job changes and I was talking with her, I was like, so what, do, you know, I'm moving to a new city. What do I do? And she was like, the first person I would call is your local APRA chapter president. Get, you know, get to lunch with them, see what they're about. What's the local community about? How often do you get together? Can you speak? You know, and so she, again, was another nudger. Um, and so I called the president at that time, uh, Devin, who worked at AU at that point. And she was just, you know, super warm, super open, super friendly, had two little girls who are about my daughter's same age, right? And so we really, we hit it off and I talked to her more about, could I speak, you know, could I get on the board? What, what would what would that all need to look like? And um, and really, as you're saying, sort of feeding that that community component um, with APRA and APRA, um, APRA chapter work. And I think especially earlier on, it was a, a safe-ish, spot, right? A safe spot where you could take some risks and try some new ideas and um, talk to other managers to just say like, okay, this is, I'm new. What are you reading? What do you subscribe to? What are your daily, you know, e-blasts you get? Um, and really just kick some ideas around. And um, it's been really wonderful to see also our local APRA chapter just sort of grow and change um, over over the last eight years. And you were you know, able to continue to build your career at GW. Um, all joking aside, 
what is a managing director of research <laughs> and relationship management? And where do you sit in the organization? Uh, what are you focused on? Yeah. So, um, so a managing director is a beautiful made-up title that comes from a large bureaucratic organization when, uh, when they, they have their parameters. Uh, but in essence, I oversee the research components, so leadership research and then gift officer research, both proactive and reactive, and then the relationship management components. Um, and so I have a director of, for gift officer research, and I've got a director for rela relationship management, and then I have an assist associate director of leadership research. Um, and so we are in that, uh, that really long title, the strategic advancement solutions pillar of our organization, which is a partner pillar to advancement services. Um, historically, we had been within the advancement services pillar, right, with all of our friends in donor relations and events and gift records and bio records, technical services. And a little more than a year ago, um, they split us, uh, development communications, donor relations, events, and some other things off into the strategic advancement solutions uh, to be sort of that partner pillar with advancement services. Was that something you pushed um, for or was sort of introduced to you? It was definitely introduced to me. Um, I was interested and excited about the idea. Um, for a while, um, donor relations, events, and marketing and communications had been sort of off in their own little um, grouping. And I really felt like research and relationship management should be with them. Um, in terms of what they were producing and how they were thinking about things um, and really leveraging each other to make all of our work stronger. And I'm grateful that I have that opportunity. Well, you know, we do uh, pre-interview surveys and uh, I loved your response to the question about where advancement is over-investing. And uh, do you recall what you said in response to that, did I say was, uh, we're doing too much technology, not enough humans too much with technology. the technology? <laughs> too much technology, and so yet here I am, as the you know the technology vendor. I thought um, about it before and, I hit submit, though. <laughs> I did think about no, it. Okay. Because I think, in a certain regard, I agree with you. I mean, ultimately, yeah. technology and modern strategies can enable great people to be better. But if the people thing isn't wired in right with the right you know, goals and training and mentorship and coaching, the technology is not going to overcome that. And so um, on one hand, your view is maybe we're over-investing in technology. On the other hand, we've been fortunate to have a pretty good relationship and you and your team have done some interesting work with our technology, which I'd love to just kind of get your perspective on because I think it can be a good example for others to learn from. But um and maybe even, I don't know, just your relationship with Evertrue when you think about, okay, here's another vendor. We have too much technology already. Um, what was that like if, from what yeah. you can recall? And I'd love you to just to share a little bit about how you've been able to really harness digital and social engagement that your team does not create, that you do not control, but you are able to harness and convert into better pipeline. And you've done such a nice job of quantifying that 
Uh, it's not sort of squishy ROI. It's real pipeline being created. And, and I love that, but, but I just kind of like to get your side of the story. Yeah. Um, so I think we've been ever true customers for maybe like four years. So we're going a little bit back in my memory, which is fuzzy. Okay. Mine too. At best. <laughs> um, so we, um, so I was brought to sort of the, the ever true realm by Matt Lindsay, um, who yeah. worked in our marketing and communications office. And he, this was a, right, like, as I was talking about in having marketing and communications and donor relations and events sort of having their thing, and me saying, like, I really, I want to be with you guys. Put me in, coach, I'm ready, like, bring me in. Um, and he and I worked on a couple of different initiatives, but booting up Evertrue and really focusing on Evertrue was one of them. And um, having, as you said, like, we're not creating the content, we're not posting the content, we're not reviewing the content, we're just really prospecting off of the content. Um, right. And it's, um, it's been a game changer, I think, for us with a lot of the gift pyramids that we've had to build for things that are not your, your tried and true, like in a, in a school silo. Um, and it, it's been so incredibly important as we've all moved to even more and more social engagement and online engagement. Right. And you just said that as you've built gift pyramids for different projects, and I think one maybe misconception out there, everybody sees the campaign gift pyramid or the consultants do the feasibility study. And what I love about having learned more about your work is there's not just one giving pyramid. Right. There's a right. giving pyramid by project, by interest area, by unit. And then obviously we've been talking a lot about how do you really build a giving funnel to then inform where right. in the pyramid somebody belongs. And I think part of what has helped us at George Washington, and it really is the people thing. It's the same technology there as it is at other institutions. Yeah. But being able to get Matt Lindsay, who really controlled top of funnel content and engagement, yep. and you, who really manage the qualification layer, those two roles so rarely collaborate in higher ed advancement. Yeah. And I guess from yeah. my vantage point, if I were in marketing communications and wanting to be able to tie dollars to my work, I would go meet my head of prospect development and yeah. really try to get to know them, what makes them tip, tick, because that is going to be the handoff. And likewise, if I were you know, an up and coming APRA member wanting to, um, you know, advance my career, I would go try to get together the marketing communications leader. But it just seems like with all those silos, like those are some of the, the, I don't know, most intense silos that are hard to connect. And so I'm just curious, like, did we luck out with you and Matt? I mean, was it intentional? <laughs> What's the story? Yeah. I mean, um, Matt, Matt was like, when I met Matt, and I got to know Matt better. Um, it was like meeting a brother um, that I had missed and not not known. Um, he was working. He had worked at GW for a really long time at that point, and was speaking um, about things that I think we often take for granted and that we see in prospect development, right? So meeting alumni where they are today, rather than assuming an interest based off of where they 
right? What they studied, what they graduated, right? All of those, like their student activities and just assuming that they are the same person from the student activity day that they are today. And um, like Matt uh, introduced me to a project that they had six years ago or something, I can't even remember, where um, we, it was the high five challenge. And so they took uh, several interests that were cross campus interests and really figured out how to, to your like funnel down to like between people voting online, voting with dollars. I think they voted twice online. It was like a lot of things and then it was less things and then they voted with dollars. And so we could, we could really see like people saying, the libraries are important to me. Athletics is important to me. Uh, women's leadership program is important to me. And you could see those come through in the surveys. And it was just so powerful for our institution, right? GW is turning 200 in February, 2021. We're old right? Big, big old ships turn super slow sometimes. And really looking at our alumni through this, this interest focus is, is where Matt and I just started to, to meet and go from there. And so there were three big areas that uh, we've been focused on. Mm -hmm. One is to complete renovations for Thurston Hall, which is one of your dorms. Yep. The second yep. was to fund a new building for Hillel. And the third yep. was to support major gift discovery for the athletics program. And I think those are three examples, building a building or a renovation, uh, you know, funding uh, something like Hillel, very interest oriented, and then obviously athletics as well, that you could sort of take out those examples, insert some other interest area and use the same philosophy approach technology that you, Matt, and others use. And so I'd love to just kind of you know, get your perspective on the outcomes you've been able to achieve and then what that funnel creation has looked like at GW from content to qualification to not just identifying people, but getting them into portfolios. And then most important, I think, getting officers to reach out and engage people around yeah. those interests, yeah. which is not always the, the typical way somebody would approach discovery and qualification. Yeah, I think that like we we sort of lucked out on those three areas um, and probably some others since then. But we we really lucked out by having gift officers who are willing to take some risks with us. Right. Who were willing. Right. Why? Like it's. Why were they willing? Uh, yeah. Like they just they were looking at an empty pipeline for their individual uh for their individual things athletics certainly has a pipeline but this was more who's new right give me the new names we know the existing names um and with hillel we had existing names and it was who else who are we missing and with thurston because of how the the university had structured our data historically we don't at least yet know who lived in that dorm we know anecdotally, but not, um, but we don't have insight into like who liked it, who had friends there, who hated it and wants to see it torn down, right? Like, <laughs> but we do now. And so really having those gift officers be like, give me, give me all, 
all the leads, give them all, and really being able to use Evertrue to say like, let's, I hear you about all the leads and let's think thoughtfully about this. Let's think about, you know, the, um, the wealthy neighborhood overlay that you guys have where we can just like already cut some of the, the wheat from the chaff and say like, here are all the things, here are the 10. These are the 10 you got to call. Right. Right yeah. here, are like here's the here's 200 people. Here are the three. If you do nothing else in the next two weeks, these are the three most so important. I love that because it really is. Sometimes people can focus on the big numbers, right? Well, it's this. It's we have 3,000 rated unassigned prospects. It's like no, we need to boil it down to 10 that are going to get engaged by a human next week. So just walk me right. through your process. You pick one of those three projects basically build a little case study here of, of what the context was, why the pipeline was, was tricky, what you with Matt, what, what the process that unfolded and, you know, ultimately resulting in either gifts or pipeline. Yeah. yeah. So um, with Thurston, what we did is we, you know, we are actively in this COVID time. That is the one project still moving forward on campus. Um, uh, and it's going to, as a, the daughter of an architect and the granddaughter of an architect and the sister of an architect, the renderings look gorgeous. And I cannot wait to get our students in there. It's going to be beautiful. Um, so really starting with like, this is a thing that is going to happen, right? This is going to be a hundred year building or more. We are replacing a hundred year building. Uh, or more on the campus and really um, starting with, as you said, the social media and how are people, are we posting about, are we posting about Thurston on Facebook? Let's talk about what that looks like. Let's get in there. Let's see who's engaging with stuff. So are you sitting there being like, hey, Matt, post on Thurston. I mean, like, is that, are you placing no, like, your content Yeah, to me, no, or? it's, I yeah. wish. Um, no, it's truly like, like it's a team effort, right? And so you get all the all the team players around and you've got your project lead, you've got your comms person, you've got, you know, maybe stewardship and digital and right, you've got all your people and prospect development. And this is why it's so critical to have prospect development at the table so that we can hear that conversation rather than as you were sort of saying, you know, not that like, here's an order, fill it. So that we can really hear that conversation and say like, actually guys, what I think we need is this and this and this not just the thing that you were going to maybe ask me for later um so truly like hearing um hearing about like how they were going to do the communications plan for thurston being able to piggyback on that um going into the contact reports so we're able to do the the data mining the text mining on the contact reports through evertrue do that same wealthy overlay um, and I think in there, it was really interesting to see not the recent people who had Thurston in their contact reports. I want the way back people. I want the people yeah. we have not talked to in forever. Like, hopefully we've talked to them, but we haven't talked to them about this in forever. And it's somewhere well, randomly in a contact that. report. Yeah. I mean, that was part of why we designed that feature, because it seemed like gift officers would build such a knowledge base through just those get to know you discovery conversations. And the common questions would be things like, 
hey, Anne, what dorm did you live in in Vanderbilt? And, you know, the the disciplined officers would log that, you know, hit enter. And then it would basically just sit there for, in some cases, years or decades. And then when it came time to renovate the dorm and somebody would say things like, hey, who lived in Thurston? And there's no records of who lived there in the 70s. But you can start to Google, you know, hundreds of thousands of contact reports and find, you know, 30 people who've referenced how much they loved it like that was part of yep. what we thought might happen. You're, you're actually making it a reality. So, you know, on one hand, there's sort of looking at what they've told us over the decades. On the other hand, what might we infer via digital engagement on, on social, layer that all in with refining criteria, whether it's wealth or past giving or net worth, et cetera. Yep. And, and that helps you get to that really concise list. And I guess I'm curious, when you then deliver those leads to the officers, are you giving them all of that context? Are you like, hey, here's why we know these are really good leads. Like these aren't just 30 names. Like we've done a lot of crunching and the data indicates that these people are going to be high likelihood to at least talk to you about this. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think to your point, right, like in the in the pyramid or the funnel model, you've got the many, right? And so what, what we're really doing is like, here's the many, but here's here's the even if it's 50, here's the 50, you've really got to start calling and doing boots on the ground for and giving them that full context, right? Here's what I found. Did you know there was this random cohort of this kind of like group that lived on floor seven, you know, between 1980 and 1992. So I went to go look for those people. I I found two more, right? Or whatever the issue was. I took out anybody where it was, I took out some negatives, right? If they didn't love it. But sometimes if people hated their time in a particular building, them seeing a beautiful new building is the right thing too. So like giving both, like all that, right? And really then starting to actively slot them into uh, into the giving opportunities, the naming, the named giving opportunities at the different levels, just sort of based off of both their capacity, but also their level of interest in this particular project. So were there any early wins in that regard where you felt like it started building momentum or the officers were like, whoa, and these are, these are really good leads compared to what we might've typically seen. Yeah. I think that they, um, they have been very uh, thankful and impressed and um, in what we've been able to, to bring to the table in, to the tune of, I think I was telling, um, I think it was, I think I was telling somebody at Evertrue, like we had started, I started this project last summer. My team is still working on prospecting, right? So it wasn't just a one and done. It's not just, right? Because to me, that's also the the sign of somebody who's enjoying my work as they keep asking for more, right? So it's not just a one, like, here's your list, take care, right? It's like, we're still involved in churning up those new leads and really trying to look at what was, what's the next post? When is that? How is that happening? What are those outcomes? And so as it relates to outcomes right now, um, there was a recent uh, article that some of my colleagues published in concert with you and your team where you've, you've actually identified 700 people across those three different campaigns that yep. have now been uh, either begun the cultivation process or are in 
active solicitation or in some cases have even funded gifts. So that really is kind of the the giving funnel slash pyramid for a couple of these specific projects. But it sounds like there's, you know, potentially millions of dollars of pipeline that isn't sort of totally a pipe dream. Like it's, it's becoming pretty real, it sounds like. Yeah. And I think one of the things in looking at sort of those outcomes and seeing, I think we've got maybe at one point we had $6 million in new proposals come out of those three projects. Um, that was, I think I checked maybe in January or February. We're six months down the road now. I'd love to check again, right? And especially yeah. if my team continues to work on those, pro- on Thurston especially, like what are those outcomes? Um, I think similarly, uh, a totally different project we did um, because a lot of people, everyone's commencement was virtual. So we actually just did a lot of prospecting off of our commencement because that was face on Facebook Live. Um, and so using Evertrue again to really pull down on the list, it was a couple hundred people who engaged at that time who like did something, not just watched it, but they commented, they liked, they loved. We had a a couple wows, right? <laughs> we, we had some tears. I don't know everything that Facebook's let, letting you do. Um, and really, again, triaging that list because my team has limited time. The gift officers have limited time and really saying to them, like, did you know these people who are in your portfolio watched commencement? They commented on it. And then again, using that wealth overlay to say, here are two other leads for yeah. you. Um, Do you and think, really pushing and that. That's one, of the, that's one of the neat aspects of this work, but do you think your communications team, I mean, their goal was to live stream commencement, right? Like that's the goal. Yeah. The goal is not yeah. to create two leads for a gift officer that's trying to strengthen their portfolio. That is a, a benefit and, and obviously aligns with a lot of what we've been trying to do. Do you think they know or or do we all need to do a better job? How do we let the communications and digital teams understand how powerful yeah. of a role they can play in generating donor pipeline. Yeah, I think exactly. I have not, so I feel like a terrible uh, colleague. I haven't told them, you're right. I need to go back and tell them like, you guys, did you know? So actually I pulled the file uh, today or yesterday, today, I think of, of those leads to just see what happened to them because, because commencement was a one, like it's very timely, right? The time is tight for people to get Right. to get out to like my team to get out and then the gift officer to do their job. Um, so I, I'm, I've pulled the file to take a little peek and see what's happened. And I'm, I'm excited to see what the results are. And it sounds like you're working in a culture and a context where you, you're fortunate. You've got a lot of gift officers who are saying, give me better prospects. Like they're willing partners, yeah. but how much of your role is, you know, Hey, Brent, we'd identified 10 really good leads it doesn't look like you've initiated contact yet. What's going on? Get to it. I mean, how much of it is the pushing versus, uh, you know, them them pulling you for for leads? Yeah, I think that that's um, that definitely happens. And one of the things I talk with my team about, and and we're always trying to figure out how to do better, is how to sort of sell that. I very corny. I'm like, how to sell your sizzle with your steak right? Like the stake is the prospect and the sizzle is whatever's going to get the gift officer to be like, I love this. I'm going to call this person. Um, 
and we work really hard on that. And we have, um, we've got some metrics in place where we do really require that people attempt contact over six months before they just drop them and walk away. Um, some people love those because it gives them, you know, they don't feel like they have to hold on to them forever just because they didn't answer. And other people don't love it because they really want to be masters of their portfolio. And in those right. cases, we take a different tactic, right? Yeah. We just, you know, they they still need to do some qualification because our pipeline is not warm and infinite <laughs> like some some other organizations. We really we work hard to get people to uh, to really care about what we're what the university is all about. Well, I really appreciate you, you know, sharing your role and your story. And, you know, I think there should be more than one managing director of, of, uh, of research and relationship management, because where this oftentimes, you know, where our world, where our work falls apart is really in your office. If we've got mm -hmm. a strong partnership, if there are progressive prospect development folks that are willing to um, collaborate with communications but also can provide context and, and have a good partnership with gift officers, that is, we see most commonly, the break in the giving funnel. It's not a shortage of content. Everybody's been doing that for a decade. Even if it's not the best content, there is plenty out there, yeah. not to mention historical yeah. contact reports. It's not the officers in that everybody has gift officers and for the most part are looking for better prospects, right? It is that middle layer where you live and where your colleagues live and where APRA is obviously stepping up and trying to provide more thought leadership around that is the handoff, that if you get that handoff right, it's almost like having an assembly line. Engage them, mm -hmm. qualify them, assign them, and then build the relationship and either disqualify or start the, the solicitation process. And that breakpoint is so key. So it's great to see the momentum yeah. that you have. We have to do, I think, a better job automating as much of that in our software as we can, but it is that human element that is just so key uh, and can make this super successful. But I'm sure we have customers that are, uh, you know, renovating dorms, uh, raising money for athletics, uh, updating their Hillel Center that are not doing yeah. exactly what you, you're describing, uh, even though uh, the exact same technology is there. So it really is that that people aspect that is that is so key, and so I am curious when you think about APRA, or as you talk to, uh, you know, to colleagues on on the conference circuit now digitally. Um, I guess what's your view on on kind of the future of the prospect development, prospect management space? Because it seems to me like it has been trending toward proactive, not just reactive, and it's really accelerating in that regard right now. In part based on the work of you and. Jacob Astley at uh, Oklahoma State, and there are others out there, uh, you know, really pushing the envelope. Um, but, but what's your take on for, you know, early career prospect development professionals, just what kind of skills or alliances even might they want to focus on to uh, ensure yeah. that they're well positioned? Yeah, that's a really, uh, really interesting question. I think to your point, right? Yes, absolutely proactive is way more where the game is rather than reactive um, in terms of how to get, right? We all need, we're, to your point earlier, we're all going after the same people. And so how to say like, no, he, he or she is aligned with us 
for this reason, not just because they're an alum, right? Because that's not enough, right? Let's give a little bit more uh, thought into that, like really building out that strategy and that engagement strategy. Um, there is also, you know, yes, the research piece, that's probably never going to, the reactive piece, that's never going to go away. Data analytics and data science is hugely building out and is exploding in prospect development. Um, I went to the CASE Drivecast conference a week or two ago. I love all the content and either I get it or it's like way over my head. And I, I every year I'm like, maybe next year I'll get it sometimes. Um, I think for the folks who are earlier and are working to build um, build those skills, it's like, don't don't leave any rock unturned, right? Raise your hand, take a risk, take an opportunity, start a project. And that may mean um, doing that with, with an app or chapter rather than with your employer, depending on where, uh, how progressive your employer is. Um, like looking for other ways to build out that sort of strategic mindset, that analytic mindset. And um, so that you've, you've got that in your bag when you're, when the next, the next managing director uh, position gets posted somewhere. And that's a really good perspective. And I think words of advice um, as we uh, wrap up here and, you know, I just want to thank you for, your willingness to share and and push the envelope and um, you know recognizing that there can be a bit of shiny object syndrome uh, in the space. We don't want to be one of those shiny objects, but uh, you know, thanks for pushing us and for frankly helping us um, better understand why that human element is so key if we're really going to try to maximize what's possible in the sector. Uh, I am curious. Like one question I love to ask is when you think about some of the best people you've worked with in the advancement space over the years, does anything stand out about those, those people, the people who, if they called you up, you'd really want to work with again? I mean, are there common traits or characteristics that you've identified as, as making people really stand out? Um, wow. That's a great question. I think I have, I have a couple of thoughts. One is, um, they're aggressive in a good way. They're aggr- they don't make any excuses about why they can't pursue this gift. Um, they're also realistic. Every great gift officer is optimistic, though, so that's that's sort of a given for me, right? Like optimistic. I'd I'd rather bring the realism if they can stay optimistic, right? Um, and they're they're just kind right where you can have you can have a hilarious laugh about whatever this is that you're working on together and at the same time you're like working together to really pump out some amazing work and you have really high trust because you can laugh through the hard times you can laugh through the good times and really you know secure some big some big money, which is really what we're what we're all about, so that we can get more kids here, more professors, more research, um, and really continue to push that envelope. Love it. Well, uh, you know, as we've said, there's a lot going on in the world right now. We believe the need for higher education and impact uh, 
and access is more critical than ever. And, uh, you know, I think people forget that that's what this is all about ultimately, right? To go from somebody who's engaged or a contact report to a qualification, to an assignment, it can seem so systematic and process driven, but ultimately that's what gets that next kid into college who otherwise couldn't go. And so it's a good, uh, reminder of that and uh, something I think we all need to just stay close to as close to that impact and that end student who is getting access uh, or a better experience. So thank you for helping um, push the envelope in this gar- in this regard for your partnership with us, but also for your leadership in the Afro community. And I guess my final question would be, if people want to stay in touch with you, where where can they find you? I've already shared that you're going to be very easy to find on LinkedIn if they just search for your job title, but uh, (laughs) any other ways, uh, any other ways folks can stay in touch? Yeah. So I'm, I'm on the LinkedIn, I'm on the Twitter. um, And I think LinkedIn has my GW email as well. So that's, that's there. Happy to, happy to have any outreach. It's always, you know, we get, we get such great ideas when we network and talk to each other about what they're, what we're each doing and what's working, what's not working. Um, so yeah, it's exciting. It's good stuff. And thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing your journey. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Mm-hmm.